No? Brilliant. Well, so good to be with you. And uh, really looking forward to unpacking some, some things with you, which I believe will help. And uh, thanks for the very kind welcome, Luke. Uh, very, very generous words. Uh, it's, it's a real honor. Do you know that the prayer thing that we do every week, it's actually been going five years now. So it's a couple of years, a few years before lockdown. And uh, I decided myself, uh, Matthew Clifton Brown back in the day, and Gordon Allen and a few others, we made a decision that, you know, we, there's one thing that we can all do that we know will make a difference in our region, and it's persistent prayer. And and quite often minister kind of gatherings, and they're nice, but sometimes it's just a lot of networking and cups of coffee and a token gesture, a bit of praying. And I always, not that that's, you know, it's nice to build friendship, but we, we felt actually, why would we not, when we're gathering, not use it as an opportunity to have leverage to accomplish something spiritually? So we made a choice that just the group of us would meet every week to pray. And what's happened is one by one, people have been added and it's grown in number and I don't know, there's, I mean, there's a huge number on the WhatsApp group, but between 25 and 35 every week we'll gather to pray for the region. And it's, it's really encouraging. It's really encouraging to see that. And we just, I guess for me and for the, everyone who gathers, we have a conviction that God's hearing and that as we're praying, then we can expect to see God do things. And it's great to see the prayer temperature in Scotland rise. And I, I can only assume, I think it was Matthew Henry, the commentator, said that when God uh, intends blessing on a people, he sets his people praying. And so I, I can only assume that God plans to do a great thing. It should be easier in these weeks and months and years ahead. We were talking about this earlier. It should be easy to see people coming to faith. And I, I don't, I mean, revival, I don't care if it's some dramatic thing they talk about in years to come. Oh, that was the, that was the revival of 2014. Or, you know, to be honest, I don't want a revival of 2014. Uh, that year that God moved, I'd love it that it, it goes on for decades. And it's not just, uh, and I, I don't mind if it's not dramatic. I don't mind if it's not like a sudden, like thousands suddenly turned up at all the churches. I mean, it would be great if it was just 10 and 20 here and 50 there and three over there, but it just kept happening. And it just kept happening for years and years and years. And we saw percentages of the population won back to Jesus. That would be great, wouldn't it? It doesn't need to look dramatic, but we want it to be dramatic in the heavenly. So one life at a time. So, Father, we pray as we, as we go into some truths today, I pray you'd speak to us. I pray you'd help me to speak and help us to hear. Uh, thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so, um, Dan had asked me to speak on the themes of leadership faith, stirring a heart and a vision for church planting, disciple-making, and evangelism. So that's the kind of themes we're going to be going through. Okay, being Scottish... Being Scottish is about driving a German car to an Irish pub for a Belgian beer and travelling home and grabbing an Indian curry or Turkish kebab on the way home to sit on Swedish furniture and watching an American TV show on a Japanese TV. And the most Scottish thing of all is suspicion of all things foreign. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? <clears throat> so here's some stuff about being Scottish. Scottish inventions. I mean, incredible. The number of inventions that Scots have come up with. I mean, it's, it's outstanding as far as the world is concerned. Bicycles, colour photography, criminal fingerprinting, the Bank of England. We, we came up with that. What's the chances of that? Golf, refrigeration, the telephone, chicken tikka masala. Let's hear it for chicken tikka masala. It was invented by a Glaswegian. TVs, lawnmowers, the postage stamp, penicillin, microwave, radar, driving on the left-hand side. 
the flushing toilet. Raincoats. Now, we could have guessed that one, right? We, we, yeah, of course a Scots person's going to come up with that. And deep-fried Mars bars. The, the pinnacle of all inventions. And to be honest, the list could have gone on, right? Incredible. It's, it, the, the statistic says that Scots are less than 1% of the world's population, and yet 11% of Nobel Prizes have been won by Scottish people. That's strange, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? It's interesting. There was an article on the BBC, uh, and it talked about this, and it says, why is that the case that so many inventions have come from Scottish people? And actually, in the BBC, it said, well, it came from the Scottish Enlightenment, which came from the policies and revival of John Knox, where he had a, and it came from the Scottish education system, which came from John Knox, who had a vision for a church in every parish, a college in every town, and a university in every city. So isn't it interesting that the, the fruit has been all this invention, but the root behind that is the education system, which came from a revival. So the root is a, is a spiritual awakening in the land that brought such blessing. Incredible. It's interesting, uh, the Scottish businessman Ian Ritchie, he said this, this is despite all this invention, he said that for hundreds of years, Scots, with a get up and go, have got up and gone. And what he meant by that is that many of the Scottish people who went on to have these inventions actually had to get out of Scotland to see the inventions come into reality. It's almost like they had to get out of the atmosphere of Scotland to get their head above the parapet and actually take some grounds with their inventions. So a lot of the successful Scottish people are success successful in other parts of the world. Uh, there's a tall poppy syndrome going on here in Scotland where if anyone puts their head above the parapet and believes for something greater than what everyone else is seeing, they're kind of shot down. Uh, Carol Craig, who wrote a book, Scots, The Crisis of Confidence, I mean, she summed it up perfectly when she said this, you're more popular in Scotland if you break wind in public than if you speak highly of yourself. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, it's very true. Reflect on that one. Uh, so there's a lot of skepticism and cynicism actually in Scotland, and, and sadly that skepticism and cynicism often creeps into the Christian world. Um, Nathan Coley, who's an artist, he has an art installation, if you could call it that, uh, at, the, at the Gallery of Modern Art in Edinburgh. It's this, it's this um, installation where it's got this, this statement, there will be no miracles here, which I find a hideous statement. But it, it actually came from a, a, a story based on medieval uh, France where there was a village there where many of the locals were claiming that miracles were happening. And the king wanted to shut down this hype. And so he put a sign uh, in this French village saying, there will be no miracles here by order of the king. And so Nathan Coley has now put this up here. And he, he felt it was an apt thing to, and he frames it deliberately with Edinburgh in the background. He, he sees this as a, as a sign of our secular, enlightened world where we don't believe in the supernatural anymore. But this, there will be no miracles here. Sadly, that mentality has crept into, into churches. When, in 1998, when Angie and I uh, moved to Edinburgh to plant the church, uh, we were 21 at the time, and we've, we, we discovered that actually Christians believe this, that many Christians, many churches, many leaders were telling us, this is a hard place. Anyone ever heard someone kind of confess that? This is a hard place. In one sense, they're being real, that it is pretty tough turf. I, I understand that. And we're in a post-Christian society. That's easy. You know, it's not, it's not so easy. It's not like you're planting a church in a place where, you know, you say we're starting a church and 100 people turn up day one. That's not the culture we're in. We're living in a post-Christian culture. So I understand why they're saying this is a hard place. But actually, it doesn't just reflect a kind of acknowledgement of the situation. It reflects where their heart is at. And it reflects a lack of faith 
that God actually wants to do something in their time and place. And so I, I became a Christian in 1991 when I was 15, 40, 47 now, 91. And when I became a Christian, I was in a Presbyterian church. That's, I, I'd grown up as, as a kid. My parents took me along there. And I started reading Scripture, and through Scripture, I saw the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And I went across to my friend's house, and I had this experience of being baptized with the Holy Spirit as we prayed. I, I ended up being water baptized by full immersion. Not that that was what my church taught. I was christened in my church. They didn't teach this, but I saw it in Scripture. And as I started reading Scripture, I saw it in the Bible. Um, it was almost like God was showing us and tantalizing us with this is what church can be like as you read through the pages of the book of Acts. And you think, God, yes, surely you haven't changed. And so I started getting this heart for, for church, even when I was in a church, which was a lovely church, but it was declining in number, very small, no expectation for growth. So what I would do is what many people like me would do in that time when you were in a more traditional church, but you had charismatic inclinations. You would go on Sunday nights to charismatic events or charismatic churches that had Sunday night meetings. And so I went along to different things. But what I discovered as I went along to different charismatic gatherings is that while they saw the gifts of the Holy Spirit moving, they really didn't have any sense of expectation that God wanted to move in our time and that God wanted to actually cause church growth. That there was almost an expectation that we're hanging on, this is in the 1990s, hanging on till the end, things will get worse and worse, and then eventually Jesus will return before we all die. You know, that, that, that was kind of the, that was, again, I can't remember anyone articulating it that way, but, but that was the vibe you got. You thought, wow, there's, real no, there's not really any expectation for ground-taking kingdom advance. And, but, but two things happened. Two things changed, shifted my trajectory. Uh, the first thing that happened was seeing things in Scripture. It, you know, just like it says, when you're saved, you hear the gospel and faith comes by hearing through that gospel message you heard, the Word of God. But also faith comes by hearing other things God says as well, that when God speaks, it provokes faith. That's the point. And so I started seeing things in the Bible. I saw in Daniel 2 that the stone that struck the statue is going to become a great mountain and fill the whole earth, referring to the kingdom and the church, before the return of Jesus. Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, God has shown you what will take place in the last days. That's our era, that God's going to do something. So it's going to fill the whole earth. And then you see it in, in Isaiah chapter 9. It says, you know, of the increase of his government peace, there will be no ends. In Ephesians, uh, the church, the fullness of him that fills everything in every way. Isaiah and Micah prophesied exactly the same thing. The mountain of the house of the Lord will become chief of the mountains and the nations will stream to it. In the last days, God says, the, in the last days, God says the mountain of the house of the Lord will become chief of the mountains. The era we're living in, I started seeing these things in the Bible. And I, 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 it's almost like I had a, a contradiction. That I could, what I could see on the outside was declining churches and no expectation. But what I started seeing on the inside was an alive faith that God wanted to do that in our time. And at the same, so the word of God changed my trajectory, but also mentors changed my trajectory. I started being exposed to some of the roots that are your roots. The, we, we've come from a, a movement uh, from last century, which many described as the restoration movement, where churches and leaders started seeing not only that God's power is available today, but also ministries like apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastors, and teachers are, are around. And, and it's through these leaders often that God's people will come into the purposes of God. And that actually the church is God's plan A 
and it's going to prevail on earth, and the kingdom of God's going to come. And these some mentors, people like Bryn Jones and Aaron Baxter, and, uh, and you guys were exposed to Terry Virgo and other great leaders in your family. But it's these mentors who were saying the things I was seeing in the Bible, and it caused an alive faith to be birthed in me. So when I came through to Edinburgh, I came with that faith, even though you're dealing often with a small beginning of a church. And for us, it was small beginnings. It started 1991. I studied architecture at Strathclyde. I was now working as an architect in a little firm in the city center. And for the first five years, I worked full-time in the architect's firm and led the church. It started in our living room, started small, just a handful of people. It took us about five years to get to 50 people. Pretty slow, quite unimpressive growth. Uh, 2003, that was year five. God told me to leave architecture. He led us to relocate our church to Leith, North Edinburgh. And he told us we were going to get our first building in Edinburgh. And I remember God, God led us to this building. We moved in with 50 people. And that year we grew through the 100 mark, through new birth growth. And by people coming back to faith. It was incredible. So many people got baptized. And the next year it grew through the 200. And then the next year through the 300. And then we'd outgrown the building we'd got. So God led us to start a second center. Initially, that wasn't our thought. Initially, it was buy a bigger building where we are. But it was God who spoke to us about being multi-site, start a second location. So we started in Gorgie, and we bought another building. And then we started our third location in Granton, and, and, and we went to multiple locations around our city. And that's been our journey, and our experience has been God's helped us, but also our journey has been planting churches. The, the people who have been with us in Edinburgh have also, I guess, catching that same faith, catching that same seed of God's word and God's heart. They've gone out and planted churches into different places in Europe, around Scotland, Africa, and Asia. So that's been our journey. And then, you know, without going into details, we, we had a curveball. You know, in the last year and a half, we had a curveball of curveballs that we, we found ourselves all of a sudden high and dry. We had to leave the movement we'd been part of. Uh, before God, we knew as a leadership team, we needed to take that step. And in doing so, we lost everything. They took our buildings, they took our money. We were left overnight, a homeless, large homeless church. But the church has rallied, I mean, amazingly. I remember, Dan, you turning up at my door when I was, no, literally, we were, we were floored. We'd been, we were on the floor. And Mike, sorry, and, and, and I saw Mike there and talking about Dan. <laughs> And, and uh, hey, why, did you, why didn't you turn up, Dan? So, so Dan, 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 Dan turned up at my door. Thank the Lord for Dan. Dan, Dan, Dan turned up at my door and, uh, with gifts and saying, you're not alone, we love you. And then, but Dan was with a stream of others, Malcolm Round and Ian McDonald from Holy Trinity. People, Dave Richards, just, they just all turned up at my door saying, we love you, we're for you. Churches started giving in the, in the three months that 16 members of our staff were unemployed. Not one of them missed a mortgage payment or a rental payment because of the giving of the churches in our city. Central said to us, there's our venue. There you go. And, and by the way, you know, when you don't have anything, literally you don't have a charity, you don't have a bank account, you can't PVG kids workers. So you can't do kids ministry. You suddenly think, oh, you can't do kids ministry. All these things that you just take for granted. So Central said, there's a bank account under our umbrella until you get set up yourself. And we'll PVG kids workers and do PAYE for your staff team and have our venue for free. You know, so just it, the kindness of God displayed in the churches. In the middle of all that, Terry and Dave Holden just reached out and said, we've heard what's happened. Come down. So I spent two days at Terry's house, and Wendy cooked me lunch, and 
They treated me like a father should have treated a son. Incredible kindness. Incredible kindness. So we got back on our feet. And then overnight, literally overnight, City on a Hill came into being. And to be honest, it, the church was birthed 1998. It just changed name. But also for us, it was a, it's a shift of emphasis, which we are so excited about. And so City on a Hill came into being. In the middle of it, we planted two new communities, which is completely, we went from four, before all this happened, we were one church in four physical locations, now we're one church in six. So a totally wrong time to plant two new communities. Completely the wrong time. And yet, God enabled that to happen. And then this family of churches go global with about 50 churches came into being. Um, many of the churches we'd planted from Edinburgh, maybe a third of them. Some of the churches had been planted from churches we'd planted and others we'd be in long-term relationship with. So this family came into being, this uh, kind of international apostolic family. So it's just been an incredible curveball. But I guess I acknowledge through it all that it, it starts with faith. It starts and finishes and continues with faith. I actually believe that God wants to do great things through churches. I believe he wants to do great things through your church. It's good to have hope for church growth. You know, I hope my church will grow. It's good to be optimistic. I mean, some of you are more pessimistic. Some of you are more optimistic. And that's good to have optimism. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're going to win. It's going to work. We're going we're to see church growth. But you really need more than hope. You need a bit more than optimism. So in this first session, I want to give you something that you can absolutely not ground your hope or optimism in, but ground your faith in for church growth. How do I know that you precious folks, this, this family of, of churches, and a couple of families advance and new ground, how, how am I utterly convinced, and how can you be completely convinced that the churches represented here actually can see growth? Well, I'm going to take you to the Scripture. This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 to 3. Sing, barren woman, you who have never borne a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide do not hold back. Say that with me. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out. Say that with me. For you will spread out. Turn to your neighbor and look at them and tell them, for you will spread out. It doesn't say you might. It says you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and will settle in their desolate cities. You know, sometimes you and I know what this is like. In charismatic churches, sometimes people will take an Old Testament prophecy and they'll bring it like a prophecy in, in the church. And I, as someone who teaches the Bible, I'm always trying to put it in this context and think, okay, does that actually fit in this context? Anyone ever done that? Right. I, I sometimes do that thing. Okay, we're just, are we just taking something that sounds quite exciting and saying, I'll apply it in a totally different context to your lives? Okay, is this what we're doing here? I hope not. We're taking a text from the Old Testament, and I'm, I, I'm, and I'm saying to you, this, without any shadow of a doubt, is referring to church. This is what it's about. This, this verse is about church. Isaiah 54 follows Isaiah 53. Now, I found that out through a commentary and some, some, some deep research, but I just noticed that. 
And Isaiah 53, as you know, is all about the cross and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, Isaiah 53 is one of those prophecies which you think, man, Isaiah, you were more descriptive of the crucifixion than even the eyewitnesses were writing in the Gospels. It's like Isaiah wrote more about the details of the crucifixion. You know, he's pierced for our transgressions. You know, the punishment that brought us peace. And he not only saw the physicality of it, he saw the purpose behind it. He saw this is what God is accomplishing for the world and the cross. So Isaiah 53, all about the cross and resurrection. In fact, and then the question is, well, what followed the cross and resurrection? Well, the answer is the birth of a people, the birth of a church. That's what followed the cross and resurrection. And in, in, in Scripture, originally, chapters and verses weren't in the Scripture. So the original text of Scripture was, didn't have chapters and verses. Now they help us. The, the chapters and verses were added in, in recent centuries. And they help us navigate through. You know, if I, was, I would say, turn to, you know, 500 paragraphs in, you know, it's not going to help you. But you say, turn to Isaiah 54. Okay, you can help. It's like a postcode. It helps you find your way to your destination. But they weren't in the original text. So the original text was one continual flow. So Isaiah 53 flowed into Isaiah 54. That's, that's the point you need to hear here. So what followed the cross and resurrection in history was the birth of the church. Now, Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, quotes these verses in reference to the church. So I'm trying to make sure you understand that we're not just taking an Old Testament passage and saying, well, let's apply this to the church because it sounds kind of optimistic, it's kind of expansionist, it sounds kind of cool. No, it really is relating to the local church. Now, here's, here's the question. How do you know, when it comes to assurance of salvation, how do you know your sins are forgiven? How do you know you've been declared the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? How do you know you're justified before a holy God? How do you know you are a saint, a holy one? I mean, you look at your behavior, you're not so sure sometimes. You look at your attitude, you're not so sure sometimes. But you nevertheless don't base it on that. You base it on something else. You have a foundation for your assurance. And what is your foundation from your, of your assurance? Well, it's verses like Isaiah 53. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. We understand that we are justified by the cross. We are forgiven by the cross. Our assurance for salvation is the cross, is Isaiah 53. So the question is this, how can you be sure of church growth? How can it go from being a nice optimistic thought? Some churches are lucky they grow, some churches don't. How can you actually go from having hope for church growth or optimism for church growth to having assurance for church growth? Well, the answer is exactly the same, the cross. We don't get anything if it's not from the cross and the resurrection. Every, every blessing we get is from the cross and resurrection. Healing, I see it in, in the cross, Isaiah 53. Peace, the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. It's all from the cross. What about church growth? From the cross, Isaiah 54 flows from Isaiah 53. How does a barren people become a fruitful people? A barren people who once weren't a people, who are now the people of God. How do that people, who were an unfruitful people on earth, the Gentile peoples, how do those peoples become a fruitful people? Well, through the cross. He took the curse. The thorns and the thistles are dealt with. Fruitfulness can now come. By abiding in him, we can bear fruit. How can a people who had once not been a people uh, who had been restricted, how can a people like that suddenly become a people whose descendants will dispossess nations and spread out to the right and the left and impact the world? Answer, through the cross. The cross changes everything. 
So the cross not only pays for our salvation and guarantees our salvation, it also purchased the success of the church. The cross purchased your salvation and the cross purchased the success of the church. The reason the church is going to prevail and be successful on earth, the only reason that is possible is because of what Jesus did in the cross and in his resurrection. So Isaiah 54 follows Isaiah 53. That's hugely important. You know, I said that it took us five years to get to 50 people as a church. I, I know that because we kind of kept a record of how things were going. And it actually took us four years to get to 30 people. Now, you imagine four years in, 30 people. I don't know about you, but if, if you'd said to me on day one of planting the church, so by year four, how's it going to be going? I wouldn't say, we're so going to be 30 people. <laughs> I wouldn't have said that. You say, I'm oh, going to be hundreds. You know, you, you kind of go with that big vision, right? You wouldn't say, oh, we will so be 30 people, right? But we were, we were 30 people. Year four, we were 30 people. And I remember thinking, this is so hard. Actually, to the point where I often ask myself, am I really meant to be doing this? I remember thinking, am I really the right guy here, God? And I kept coming back to a sense that God was saying yes. But I remember what kept me going in those early days was vision. I kind of go back to what I said earlier. I'd seen something. I'd seen something I couldn't unsee. There was a faith in my heart for church. I believed it. I'd seen it from Scripture. I had faith that had come into my heart, and I couldn't deny it. I'd heard God. I'd seen God. I'd seen what God wanted to do, and I couldn't deny it. And every time in those days when I thought, Lord, I think we should quit, I kept coming back to, but I can't deny what I believe. I can't deny what I've seen. I can't deny what you've said. So I realized that vision kept me going. And there was many points I had to, like David, when his people st spoke of stoning him, it says he took himself aside and encouraged himself in the Lord. I remember saying, God, am I really meant to be doing it? And it would be those moments where, God, I, would, I, would, I cannot deny what you've said. I cannot deny what I've seen. And I suddenly realized, actually, that people started coming because of the vision as well. So vision kept me going, but vision kept them coming. That was the point. I remember in those days in Tollcross Primary, 30 people in a primary school, and a South African family turned up. And you know, I was in my 20s. Like attracts like. The church was full of 20-year-olds. And this South African family came, and they had teenage kids. And they were, I guess, in their 40s or 50s. And I remember thinking to myself, this probably isn't the right church for you. Or I think, I mean, you've got teenagers. There's a great church along the roads. I was thinking in my head, Charlotte Chapel or ECF in its day. It was, oh, they've got some great youth ministry going on there. You probably would do better there. Now, it was an insight thought. I didn't say it out loud. I was thinking, please stay. But, but actually, I was thinking in reality, if I was you, I probably wouldn't choose this church. And anyway, years later, four members of the family, three of the family were ended up on church staff with us. Anne was one of our pastoral team. Brian was our maintenance guy looking after the buildings. And Ash was one of our administrators. So of, of the four, of the three of the four of the family ended up not just being in the church, but on staff. And I remember asking Anne years later, why did you stay, Anne? I mean, I remember that first time when you came, and I thought, wow, great, a family with teenagers. This is amazing. But why did you stay? Because really, we weren't the right church for you. And she said, Pete, well, when we first came, we sat through the service, and we thought, this is a great youth service. I wonder when the main service will start. <laughs> and then they realized, oh, that was the main service. That was the main service. But she said there was something about the vision you carried that had credibility about it. There was an air of God's in this on that vision. You know, when, and, and I suddenly realized 
that vision not only kept me going, but vision kept them coming. So, so, so I started becoming quite intentional with the vision. I started once a month preaching on vision. And every time, you know, once a month, we did a visitor's lunch where we sh- would share the vision and we'd give them opportunity to ask any questions. And it's, uh, vision has an anchoring power. Vision kept me going, but vision kept them coming. And I had faith. All, all I know is that what got me through those early days of the slow, unimpressive, behind-the-scenes growth was this faith that God would break through. And so, too, we have to have that faith. We need more than optimism, wishful thinking, or a good idea. We need to know that God's in this, and we need to have faith that God's going to do it. This is what Rick Warren says at the end of his book, The Purpose Driven Church. Now, Purpose Driven Church is an amazing book. He's quite, if you, if you read the book, he's quite prescriptive about how churches should do things. He said, you need this type of vision statement. You need to do this sort of analysis of your community. He's quite prescriptive. But then he concludes the book almost by contradicting everything you said in the book. He said, but to be honest, having said all that I've said, really what you need is faith, right? This is what he says. He says, I, as I've studied growing churches over the years, I have discovered one great common denominator in every growing church, regardless of denomination or location. Leadership that's not afraid to believe God. Growing churches are led by leaders who expect the congregations to grow. And that's where it's at. And I, I think God works with our faith. God works with our faith. And now you have a basis for your faith. Single barren woman after the cross, single barren woman, people who weren't fruitful, now you can be fruitful. You have never born a child. For more of the descendants of the desolate woman than her who is a child, says the Lord. Then he goes on to say, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out your tent curtains. And he talks about expansion. Your descendants will resettle desolate cities and there'll be expansion. So I want to kind of bring it into ground just for you folks. The statement we read says, enlarge the place of your tent, do not hold back. Enlarge the place of your tent, do not hold back. It's a new ground in advance. It's time to think big. It's time to allow big thoughts to come into your soul. It's time to have big expectations. And I don't mean that in some egotistical way, so that you're bigger and better than anyone else. You know, a million miles from that. Don't mean it for that reason. I mean it for the, for the glory of God, for the sake of precious people who need Jesus. It's time to think big. Uh, there's a guy fishing one day, and he was fishing down at the bank, and someone else was watching him. And as, as the guy was watching the guy fishing, he noticed a strange thing happening. Every time the guy caught um, small fish, he would keep the small fish. But every time he caught big fish, he would put them back. And he thought, this is strange. So eventually, after watching this for a while, he kept throwing the big fish back and keeping the small fish. The guy eventually interrupted him and said, excuse me, sir, I'm seeing that you're fishing, but every time you catch a big fish, you put it back, and every time you catch a small fish, you keep it. He said, what's, what's going on there? Because usually people keep the big fish and throw the small fish back. And he said, oh, the problem is my frying pan is only 10 inches, <laughs> 10 inches big. So that, that was his problem. And, and, you know, actually what can happen is if we don't have the right size of thinking, big thoughts can come our way, and we'll just think, we'll just let them go right on by. We won't grab hold of them because for some reason our frame of reference won't allow that big thought to land. Um, And I I believe God wants to challenge us to conceive of bigger dreams. That God's looking for people actually where bigger dreams can land and they'll say, I receive that. God's looking for people who will actually allow the bigger dreams to land. You see, 
it's nothing to do with the size of the dream that makes it successful. Nothing to do with the size of the dream. It's everything to do with the accuracy of the dream. Nothing to do with the size. Everything to do with the accuracy of the dream. If it's from God, I don't care how beyond reasonable it seems, God will see to it happens. And some people refuse to embrace dreams, big dreams that are accurate, simply because they're too big. So we need to change the size of our frying pan. We need to think bigger. So my question is, what plans have you been resisting? Just make it really practical. Pastors, what plans have you been resisting? Church leaders, what plans have you been resisting? And you might have various good reasons why, well, we don't have the capacity for that, or we couldn't afford that, or I don't have the people for that, or that wouldn't work in my context. There's so many good reasons why, you know, my frying pan's only this big. But the, the, the question is, it's nothing to do with the size of the dream that makes it success. It's everything to do with the accuracy of the dream. What big plans, or even small plans, what plans have you been resisting because of your frame of reference? You know, I said earlier that in the middle of all that was happening, we, we planted two communities. You know, this, in Edinburgh, this is, was completely the wrong timing. I could, I, so let me give you one example, Musselburgh. My friend Alistair Matheson, he, he looks after the Pentecostal denomination called Apostolic Churches, and he looks after the Scottish Apostolic Churches. He's a great guy. In fact, he leads the pastor's unity thing in Glasgow. And for a while, he was given oversight of a small church in Musselburgh, uh, the Harbour Church in Musselburgh. And he, the pastor there, Adrian Galley, had moved away. They didn't have a new pastor to step in and replace him. So the church was without pastor, and it was very small. And so when Alistair went over to try and get it going again, there was only 10 people in the congregation. And unfortunately, there was, there was no potential leaders. And so Alistair made the decision with his team that actually it's probably the right thing to close the church and help the 10 people find their way to other churches. Anyway, as he was considering this, he and I were having a conversation. And then it came out, the curveball thought, Pete, would you want to try and replant something in, in Musselburgh? And again, it's completely the wrong timing. We were just, we were floundering. We were just trying to get ourselves back on our feet. We were trying to just figure out how to exist as city on a hill, having gone through the trauma we'd just gone through. So it, it was completely the wrong timing. So, so I said, of course we would. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, it's like, you almost like you catch yourself saying it in the middle of it. You think, why did I say that? <laughs> But yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you say yes to that? So I said, yes, we, we, we'll do this. And then I told my team about it afterwards. And they were saying, why did you say yes? <laughs> but I'd said it then, so it was out, it was out. But do you know, um, it's quite amazing. So we, we, we replanted this, and actually for us it made sense. There was quite a lot of people coming from that neck of the woods um, who were looking for, they were finding traveling to some of our other communities quite far. And actually for them, it really worked. But also, years ago, I'd walk and prayed. I'd, I'd spent days walking and praying the streets of Musselburgh, praying for that area. So for me, it wasn't a new area. It was an area that has been in my heart for a long time. And so it connected. So I said, yes. You know, amazing story. One of the ladies, so the 10 people who were in the church actually continued with us. And so there's about, I don't know, 25 adults and about 25 kids now. So it's a cool community that's, that's going. And I tell you what, it's absolutely alive. We've got VP Nell, WP Nell, he's the prop for uh, Scotland. He's a Scotland prop, big guy. He, 
he's in the congregation, so he fills at least three seats. So <laughs> it, it, just, it just feels like there's more people there. <clears throat> so he's great. But, so that, that's, that's our congregation. But one, one of the ladies who had been in the congregation historically was, is a lady called Jamila, an Indian lady. And every, as an apost- when it was the apostolic church, they had a Monday night prayer meeting. And for years, Jamila's a real intercessor. For years, she went faithfully to the Monday night prayer meeting. And every time she went, she had a scripture in her heart, the same scripture every week, and she prayed it every week. She prayed this prayer. And the prayer came from Matthew 5, which says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Right, so she went with that scripture in her heart every week to the Monday night prayer meeting, and her prayer was, God, let us here in Musselboro, let us be like a city on a hill in this community. Please, God. Isn't that cool? But you should prayed that. To the point where she was so clear as a God prayer that she was confused when the decision came to close the church. She was confused. She said, God, you've led me to pray. Why is this? And then we're now sitting in a hill. I mean, that's, I mean, we weren't even, I didn't know we were even going to be called that then. So that's amazing. But she'd been praying that. You think, wow, God, you're in this. So that, that made no sense to say yes to that, this, this idea that came. And yet, because I'd, in my mind, I had a, had a different size frying pan. I was, I was open to an idea that, you know, may, others may have just let it go on right on past and miss an opportunity that actually God had for you. So what are the plans you've been resisting? There was a survey carried out of church leaders leading different sized churches. And the question was, how large should your church be before you plant a church? All of them answered about 25% bigger. So the church of 1,000 said they would need to be 1,250, and the church of 200 said we need to be 250. <laughs> You'll never feel ready. I mean, if you're waiting to feel good about it or feel ready about it, you're never going to feel... I mean, how many of you felt ready to start a small group? You know, I've never once had a small group leader saying, oh, yeah, I'll lead a small group. I always have to, you really need to do this? Please, would you do this? Come on, would you do this? All right, oh, then, okay, then. And then they do it. And then they're, they're small group leaders, right? I've never had a small group leader saying, yeah, I feel ready for this. Never. You always feel nervous. No one feels ready for church planting. No one feels, I didn't feel ready to plant a church. I didn't feel ready for what happened to me. But nevertheless, it doesn't mean it's not right. So we've got to allow ourselves to be open to the ideas that God wants to send our way. The church in Jerusalem didn't feel ready for the strategy. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And yet Acts 8 happens. The persecution was unleashed at the hands of Saul against the church. And it says, and all except the apostles were scattered from Jerusalem. It didn't, they didn't feel ready for it. And yet it was completely God's timing. So there are God ideas that God wants to bring you away. Team leaders, small group leaders, elders, preachers, pastors. God wants to bring God ideas your way. And We've got to make sure we don't restrict ourselves and say no to what God wants us to say yes to. So let's have bigger souls, bigger souls. You know, when we started in Edinburgh, the two groups that opposed us most were witches and pastors. <laughs> I mean, how does that work? We had strange witchcraft stuff happening, really weird witchcraft stuff happening. And the, there's so many stories I could tell of that. It's just not nice, just horrible. But it was overt witchcraft. And pastors. We got real opposition from pastors starting our church in Edinburgh in 1998. And you think, I remember praying, God, if you, if you ever give us traction, 
if we ever get on our feet, if, you, if we ever actually become established as a church, then I want to do everything I can to encourage new church planters in Edinburgh because that's not why I experience. So I want, to, I want to encourage church planters. So I quite often will connect with the church planters that arrive in the city and cheer them on. In fact, we had a guy, uh, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a guy just starting, Paul Richards is starting a church called Take Ground Church. Um, they've come over from America, Louis Giglio's church. They've come over to Edinburgh to plant a church. And they were in our service a few weeks ago uh, in, in Charlotte Chapel. We had the service there. And I saw them there. They were just turning up. And I saw them, so I got them to stand up. And I said, church, let's all pray for them. They're starting a new church. In fact, we got them at the front. We prayed for them. We prayed blessing on them. And at the end, members of my church said, Pete, we absolutely love being in a church that would celebrate the planting of new churches. You know, I, I can imagine you might be, pastors who are insecure might think, I don't want to profile this guy because everyone might, what if they all go there? <laughs> okay, well, if they all go there, what's going on really anyway in your church if they all want to, if you're worried about that? But to, to have the culture that says, actually, we want to cheer on genuine success and other people. Uh, and, and, it, and it challenges your insecurity and your own competitiveness because we're humans and we've got these stupid things going on in our souls. But let's allow our hearts to have bigger, have bigger souls believing God for the bigger thing. And also, don't lock down your strategy like a frying pan to a Scotland-only strategy. Because I, I know you guys are thinking and discussing how can we now multiply churches in our region. And you're absolutely right. But what if God wanted you to plant a church in Nigeria? What if God wanted you, you guys to plant a church into Dublin? So, but, oh, no, no, sorry, God, that's a nice idea, but we're, we've decided we're going to do this. You know, you've got this frying pan. Now, I'm not saying God, God, God will totally use you to multiply churches in Scotland around the borders, across the central belt, God, God, up north. God's totally going to use you guys to do that. And in fact, Scotland really needs you guys to multiply. But there will be, there will be people in your congregations whose future won't be in Scotland and whose actual calling is to plant a church. Now, wouldn't it be a missed opportunity if you hadn't clicked onto that and develop them and been ready for them to plant churches. So be willing to plant churches beyond yourselves. Never, the question is never, is it affordable? The question is never, is it possible? The only question is, is it right? Is it morally right? And is it right in the sight of God? And if it's right, then you embrace the dreams. So just as we're coming to land in this session, it's just actually in some, at the end of couple of the other sessions, I'll get you to get into discussion groups. But at the end of this session, I just want you to have a time of personal reflection. And in this moment, I want you to reflect on, on this question. It's on the, on the screen here. Enlarge the place of your tent. Do not hold back. Question. Three questions. How does this text apply to your life and ministry? <laughs> Second question. Are there any ways you've been holding back? And third question. What are your expansion plans? All right, just to provoke us a little bit. So just take a moment, maybe get a notepad and pen out. Let's just take, I don't know, five, do we have time for five, 10 minutes? Just to reflect and to maybe reflect on these in prayer and jot down some, allow yourself to dream. And it might be as you're doing this, God drops dreams into your heart or reminds you of dreams that you'd had previously, but maybe life, maybe life has battered some of the dreams that you used to hold to out of your soul but they were actually God dreams. So maybe this is an opportunity to resurrect some of them as well.
All right, I'll give you space. I don't know if the guys want to play a bit of worship music in the background, and let's just uh, reflect on these questions. Lord, I pray, guide us as, as we think now. Speak to us, Lord. Remind us of things we should be hearing. Protect us from being people who let go of the dreams that you've got for us. In the name of Jesus, help us to embrace every good, every good idea from heaven. Amen. All right, enjoy reflecting. <laughs>